All right, so we are recording our very first official book club episode here of In Full View. Um, I guess, again, technically speaking, we have talked about a book almost as the centerpiece of every episode. So it's maybe a little bit uh, disingenuous to say this this is the, the first style episode, but this is the first one that's really meant to be about the book itself. And then the book in question is George Orwell's 1984. So uh, I just finished reading that Monday, I think. Um, so uh, I, I probably could have gotten through it a little quicker, but I, I took a few days off of just doing anything for a bit. But uh, yeah, so and this is uh, your this is my first time reading it. And this was your second time reading it, Max. Yeah, this is my second time through. I read it probably two or three years ago. Yeah. And then I also just finished it. Um, it might have also been Monday or possibly Sunday. I don't know. Yeah. This last yeah week or so. Yeah. So it was, um, so I guess, I don't know if we want to go over this in terms of like the parts or, or kind of like general consensus first or reactions. I mean, obviously, um, you know, heads up, spoiler alert. I mean, we're not going to try to tiptoe around anything. This book is what, like 80 years old. So it's, um, you know, it's been out for a while yeah. or it's coming up on 80 years. I think it was published in the, like the late forties or something like that. Um, sure. so we're, we're coming up on it, but, uh, I know that uh, I'd kind of written a little bit about it after I'd finished it, and uh, I'll probably like refine that a little bit and, and and publish that kind of separately. But like one of my first impressions, and this is what I'd heard from, I think maybe even you or um, other friends who have read it, is just like, "Oh, you're reading 1984? Like you're not in for a good time." Yeah. <laughs> in the sense that it's it's bleak, right? It's uh, especially, I mean, the ending. Uh, and how it all kind of ends up. So it's kind of like, sure. Yeah, um, let's go. Like, oh, yeah, this was pretty uh, not happy, like as far as a book goes. <laughs> and I guess I, I don't know. I, I wasn't really expecting otherwise, although I would just say, and we, we did mention before about kind of maybe mentioning other dystopian works. And the other two that I'm a lot more familiar with are Anthem and Fahrenheit 451. Um, and then both of those do have like hopeful endings. Right. So it's like, yeah, they, they are in bleak worlds to start, but they kind of end on a positive note. Yeah. Whereas, whereas this one, like it starts bleak, you get a little bit of hope and then it ends bleak. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's probably the uh, I've read the same ones you have. Um, I, I mean, I read 1984 like years ago, though. So but um, probably in high school, actually. I mean, Not Fahrenheit. No, Fahrenheit 451. Um, but, uh, I just read, um, and I, you know, I don't, I think we should not to stray too far, but I read, um, another dystopian novel that's largely the, oh, you broke up there for a second. Grandfathers of these novels called, well, I'm breaking up. Yeah. How's it now? Sounds good. Close. Resume. All right. right. So anyway, so so, sorry about the technical difficulties. (laughs) No worries. So, yeah, so I haven't read, I've read, you know, a handful of these dystopian novels and this one's, 1984 is definitely the bleakest in terms of its, its conclusion ending or where it ends up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and I I guess if we just want to talk about like, I don't know if we want to get too into the plot or just our overall feelings. Um, Yeah. How did you feel about this book, Mike? Uh, I, I I liked it. Like I liked the book as like just a piece of literature, and then I even liked a lot of the ideas that it were, was presenting. 
um, and even the progression of things again, like I, I, I am, I guess for as like sarcastic, I can be, or maybe, um, pragmatic or realistic I, I i think i do kind of consider myself somewhat of an idealist or a hopeful person so i i do enjoy a happy ending like i prefer happy endings even though i know that's not reality um so like that was a little bit kind of like ah oh, man that was a bummer <laughs> like just getting to the end of it um but i i liked it i like this setup uh as far as like dystopian worlds go uh, of the three that I've read, right, this one actually seemed almost the most realistic, at least based on, you know, the reality that we live in, because it's like, okay, like, that doesn't seem that far off the mark of society as it stands now to be like, from my point of view, I mean, there's obviously, this was written back in the 40s. So it was it predates a lot of the technology and stuff like that. But um, like its presentation of of kind of like different classes and, and, and the surveillance state and sort of like, um, you know, elitism or whatever else. It seems like, oh, that seems somewhat contemporary to, to, to today's standards. Like, it seems like that's not too far from where we are. Uh, and then uh, as well as like the idea of like perpetual war and stuff like that, which sure. we've sort of like, you know, in some form or fashion, uh, uh, been in a state of perpetual war since like the 1980s right if not before that yeah um somewhere in the world right and that's kind of what the book even gets to in, in some of its uh its ideas it's like oh yeah there's just always some war going on somewhere whether it's a major one or a lesser one or whatever yeah um so it's it's so like that's like that kind of struck me a little bit especially considering when it was written and how and that's what a lot of stuff about a lot of these, uh, you know, dystopian things end up being is like how accurately they, they, they've been able to predict aspects of the future, right? That didn't quite exist when they were written about, which was sort of the point, right, of those works is that they're kind of intended to be warnings of a, of a kind. Um, and then the fact that I guess not enough people read <laughs> read the works or took them seriously enough to kind of like heed those warnings or the people that you know did didn't care and that goes for more than just 1984 but similar things with you know fahrenheit or uh, I, I don't really think anthem applies here quite because that's almost like dystopian to the point of being um you know prehistoric right like that's kind of like how far they took that concept mm -hmm. um so i don't think that was necessarily realistic whatsoever but um so that was kind of my take on on the world that was built and then uh, I, I did like you know, the main character's sort of journey of being like that outsider or that outlier in society, right? It's a part of the outer party or whatever it would be considered, Winston Smith, and um, sort of him coming to terms with it, it being okay to be like the outsider, and then obviously almost finding happiness in that, and then ultimately that gets, you know, taken away from him, and then the, you know, the story ends. So. Sure. <laughs> um yeah i mean i well so i agree with you about the perpetual war part actually in my notes that's the one where i'm like yeah this seems pretty pretty accurate i don't think i loved this book i think there are parts of it that i enjoy and then you and and to expand i guess a little bit you sent some articles some some non-fiction essays written by george orwell and i actually enjoy his non-fiction writing i enjoyed it more than i enjoyed his fiction writing mm -hmm. i found 
a lot of this book to be sort of boring at times. Like, I feel like, especially the first third or the first book or whatever, where he's just sort of like kind of figuring it out and he's kind of like, he's suspicious of things. I feel like that could have been cut down. I feel like it went on and sure. on and like it, we didn't, we, there was no real progression. And then the second book is like him like living with a woman. And there's a lot of like, and this is a weird theme that I've noticed, at least in the three of the dystopian novels I've read. It's like dumpy kind of, I guess not in Anthem. He's like super jacked, but, <laughs> uh, but like kind of like whatever guy gets laid. And it's mm -hmm. like, and there's a lot of like having sex is important in some way, almost like it's like a defiance of the state or, or like the, the for some reason that in these novels it's often like the the ruling class doesn't want the the people to make love I guess it's all supposed to be like regimented in some way yeah and so there's just a lot of focus on that which at least in our modern times like that's just not how it, like that didn't come true like that ain't yes i'll, I'll agree with that like that's <laughs> yeah. that's one one capacity that i don't think has has come true whatsoever and i would i would um based on, I, I didn't finish the brave new world but i think that aspect is closer right to reality where like there's been a promotion of you know free love or promiscuity right, right. like that that's become more the norm here but it's also like in that they sort of also still remove love from the equation, right? right. Where like yeah, sex, I sex see. is okay, but love is still not encouraged. Right. So Human, that kind of connection. And, yeah. and that's sort of true today as well. I mean, I don't think it's, it's not, I wouldn't uh, attribute that to um, like a government body or a corporate right. body. It's just become a cultural thing where like, oh, like, what is love anyway? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, they kind of like bring that question to it. So I would, I 100% agree with that, where um, that prediction, as far as uh, 1984 is concerned, or Anthem is concerned, has not come to pass. Um, for sure. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And it is sort of interesting how they, they do play that that is an interesting, like, theme that is present in this book, where and they, they do kind of make the 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 separation right where within like the outer party or inner party they discourage right like that romantic love or even yeah. like sexual pleasure but they do kind of point out that like amongst the lowest class like it seems to be freely accepted right we're right. like oh yeah you can like you you're able to fall in with whoever you like you have as many children as you want the part of the proles right the proles is like yeah. the, the lowest class in, in terms of the the tiered hierarchy there um but it's also interesting that you kind of bring that up at least on the the um, the back of his nonfiction stuff or his essays. So the only one I got through was the uh, the notes on nationalism. Did you end up reading the line in the unicorn as well? Yeah, I read that as well. Okay, so I didn't end up. Uh, I printed it off yesterday, and then I was like, oh, this is like thirty something pages. I'm long. just, I'm not. I'll I'll read it. I'd like to read it just to kind of yeah. um, understand it, some of the stuff a little bit more. But and um, I would say it's very like of its time. It's very much like. England in World War II and how right. he thinks like the government it should become more of a socialist society in order to tackle the problems of the day. Um, so a lot of it is very like irrelevant <laughs> or like not, a lot of this didn't happen or whatever. You know, we live in the future, but I did enjoy his. It just felt snappier and like just. I just felt like a lot of 1984. Just I mean, like the torture part was obviously the part that he was like. I felt like he had the most like um, 
I guess, forward momentum. Like it just clipped along and I got, you know, I felt like it's a very slow burn for the first like. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I think that the first part of the book, right? So it's a book told in three parts or the, so the exposition, like the whole first act is probably longer than it needs to be. Um, I think it's, I don't know if it's a matter of trying to establish just how kind of oppressive or kind of sure. of, of a bummer the world is, right? Although I feel yeah. like the way Winston sort of acts within that that first act is it, he seems somewhat, you know, not like free, free, but like he's not completely oppressed and sure. he, obviously he's discovering things. And then the second act kind of rolls along as like a romance of a sorts, right? It's kind of like a little mini romance within the uh, the, the greater narrative. And again, that's where I think like the big, the, the most hope is instilled in that book, right? Because that's where Winston as a character becomes more confident um, in himself. Right. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, there, there does seem to be more forward momentum of like the plot of potentially like breaking away from uh, the world of Oceania uh, right. or the Ingsoc or whatever. Um, and then... Yeah, I, it, it seems like the uh, the torture stuff was very focused. Oh, other than, and maybe this is just more like my taste is like the third act. Like it was just that was sort of a drag to get through. Mostly, maybe it's because like I knew it was coming close to an end, and it was just so um, like negative there, where it's like, sure. oh man, and and then the, but even there, like there's like the uh, there are the glimmers of hope where Winston seems to be sort of like fighting against the. Yeah. the torture to a certain extent um but then you know ultimately it it's all for naught yeah and i would say like yeah i guess i should clarify uh i guess i felt like it moved fast like i wasn't getting as bored but in terms of themes i yeah i still don't i didn't really love the third act either just because i felt like it just didn't a lot of this book to me just doesn't make a lot of sense like it wants to make sense but it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense like to me the idea of a a totalitarian government and this is what o'brien basically explains to him like oh we're not in it for anything other than just pure power and even right. not even like for ourselves but in some abstract way for the state in order that the state may become like an immortal god in some way and it's like, this makes no sense. Because if we look at like the real world, all of these totalitarian states, at least on some level, it was like, they thought they were going to make the world better for maybe just their people or just like, you know, this certain race. But it was always like couched in an almost idealism. Like they thought they were doing the right thing or whatever you know no one's like oh i'm doing this just to be evil <laughs> well right and that, that's i think after reading at least the one essay that the notes on nationalism it actually kind of clarified some of that for me because i kind of had a similar take as i was reading it i'm yeah. like that's like a weird way to approach like a pretty you know one note villain right, right. like as far as how like they, they developed um the party right the party or, sure. or whatever else like oh like they're just straight up like bad guys yeah, or whatever yeah. and the, he does make reference the o'brien character you know in terms of like kind of explaining the philosophy and then this sort of made sense um after reading that the notes on nationalism where it's it's nationalism without the principle right like like it's like oh like nationalism to the nth degree and to the worst like oh like we are 
we're buying into our ideas for the sake of buying into our ideas. It's not to help anybody else. And he even says that, I think, as it relates to communism and the Nazis, I think O'Brien makes reference to it, if I'm not mistaken, or in yeah. some capacity, he was like, oh, like they, these people, they didn't have the courage to say that they were just evil. <laughs> it's like, it's right. kind of like his, think- his, his take. Um, and again, I think that, that that's sort of Orwell's point, and that's the point of anything or of any sort of cultural, social commentary fiction is to be hyperbolic, right? To present sure. like, oh, this is like, the, this is the, uh, the crazy funhouse mirror version of these philosophies and how I, bad they could be like if, if it was really if there were no restraints on it right yeah that, but it's almost like if there was no logic because i don't know like i've read other books about like communist russia and and nazi germany and and one of the more poignant things is that like you start to see how they thought they were right or what they thought they were doing because they thought they were, you know, helping their people or improving mm-hmm. the quality of life or changing a power structure, whatever it was. And that can give, it, it just, it makes, it's a human motivation. Whereas this, it, it's very inhuman. It's like, what? Like, why would, because not only is he unhappy and not only does he, like O'Brien or the party get nothing out of this, like no one else in the society does either. Like every single person in the society is like miserable and like lives on rations and is spied upon like it's like i don't know there's no good there like even in even in anthem the bad guys had a reason you know or like the the whatever it was the The, state had the antagonist right so the antagonist had had a reason to say oh we're doing this because they thought it was a better society because they thought that everyone working together as a collective whatever benefited the whole this it's like well everything sucks like what is the (laughs) i guess i i don't know i'm kind of you know i didn't understand the point i guess like what did the what good came out or or what i don't know that's why that's why i feel that's where my criticism book lies it's like i don't understand well, I think, and again, is this just goes back to like the exaggerated point um, of things is I think it's like, like complete bastardization of political idealism or again, nationalism, I guess, is, is specifically what he was targeting in, in this book, right? Like sure. when we have the Oceania, Oceania, East Asia, Eurasia, all that stuff or whatever. And I think in part, it's and I think he made reference to it like in some of the the writings of the Goldstein character, right? Where yeah. you have a group of people who it was like the the middle class is always fighting to be the the high class, and then that ends up being a cycle where like you know they, they cycle in and out. Um, and it was a matter of of like maintaining power. And I don't know if I necessarily, I mean, I think I do think it ends up being an evil thing. But I think that there is because I've I've posed this question in in reality, right? Because like people make these claims all all the time about all sorts of government officials or corporate entities, where like oh, like they're just after power, right. and it's kind of like well, why, right? Like like, well, like exactly. and everyone, but they make those claims in reality, right? Like oh, like they just want more power, they want more power, and it's kind of like I just I don't, and I'm with you. This is where I mean I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Where like I don't know how true that is. How many of these people really want the power for power's sake, 
Well, at the same time, I think that there there is truth to the old, you know, the the, the old uh, cliche or whatever is the the power corrupts absolutely or whatever, like or absolute power sure. corrupts absolutely or just like once you kind of get a taste of power, it's kind of hard to to give it up and stuff like that. So maybe like again, this is just a hyperbolic, exaggerated metaphor for the dangers of it. And again, maybe in the sake of of being realistic, it's not sure. It, there's it's that, not, I guess there's that, no quality to it, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I just but there think, is truth to that too, right? Because yeah. like you, I'm, I'm sure like maybe you've experienced this, you know, and I've I've experienced this in, in just kind of like short things with lives when you have you know. Um, whatever bosses or like uh coaches or i've even seen it amongst like teachers or people right or we see it with the police or whatever else when they get like this little taste of power is like people people do tend to take advantage of it right like like oh like let's just use this power to perpetuate more power or to show our power because we can and again this is a a, a cartoonish reflection of that yes almost um but it's still like but you can see shadows of that in reality Right. Where it's like, oh, like, why are they like what even like within political decisions or whatever else? Like, why are they doing this? <laughs> like a yeah, show I mean, of power. I mean, I. I in a way, I, I agree with you in that. I think your conception of it as being like this, like hyper reality, um, cartoonish exaggeration of these things, like you said, like nationalism without the without the i don't know i want to say heart but without the 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 theory it's just like oh it's just this pure thing i i agree i think that's probably what he was going for um and then i i think what you said is kind of true also like in an interpersonal way i do think we use power just to like control other people like you know like cops civilians or politics you know or like a, a judge over like someone he's sentencing or whatever there is sort of this like you get a sort of um, charge out of, I think, you know, like controlling other people, but in a, in a societal sense, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like in a broad, because I agree with your point also is when people say things like, oh, they just want power. It's like, well, no, they want power in order to get what power gives them, which is usually access to like goods or like, uh, you know, money, generally speaking, is what power gets you but it also gets you access to like people that maybe you wouldn't be able to interact with it gets you stuff and i mean i think that's why like um animal farm to talk about another oral book it's probably more accurate in that that what the pigs wanted for with the power was to have access to like warm beds and better food and and in some senses in, in 1984 the party the inner party does have access to those things because when they go see O'Brien in his apartment, he's got like a big apartment and like an Asian butler and he's got like cigars and wine and he can turn off his uh, telescreen or telescreen. Yeah. But he doesn't even seem to enjoy it. It's like, a, I guess, and maybe that this is where the, the unreality comes in. He just seems like a straight up sociopath. Like none of these things matter to him. Yeah. Well, and that was, and it's curious because like obviously our really, our, our only real insight into the inner party is through the character of O'Brien, right? Like we don't yeah. see anything else um, as, as a reader, right? We aren't exposed right. to anything else. And we do see that he does have access, like, right, you said like the wine, cigars, it seems like they at least give the idea that he has like a nicer home and a nicer place or whatever else. He has a servant. Um, and then even Julia does reference because like of her position within the outer party, like she's 
at least been privy to some of the inner party workings or as part of the anti-sex league or whatever it was like, oh, no, like some of these inner party people are like some of the biggest deviants, you know, you'd ever meet. Yeah. Um, but like the, the whole idea is to to hide that from like the public. So it does seem like, you know, maybe O'Brien himself is like the worst of them, right? In the sense that maybe, and that's why he has that particular job of being maybe. one of one of the thought police, because that's what he ultimately is. Or he's he turns out to be spoiler alert, right? Because he ends up being one of the thought police. He's out to catch the people who are who are maybe trying to dismantle the party. So he is like he's like the a rabid dog. I mean, he's very calculated as he's presented sure. in the book. But maybe like the way he had been programmed, right, whether that was through torture or whatever other reeducation, it makes it the point where like he has access to these these pleasures, but doesn't really care for them because he's almost been trained to be indifferent towards them. Right. Versus you, you might have other people who are party inner party who we never see who are the people who are like, no, we just want to maintain this status quo where we have a pretty kick ass life and everyone yeah. else is like mediocre or sucky. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that. There is yeah, yeah. a lot that's not shown to us. And to sure. be fair, like that's that's going to be the nature of the book because we see everything through Winston's eyes. So we only get um, his perspective on life as part a member of the, the like the outer party. So in that that middle class and then his 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 really only his only glance into the inner party is that one little chapter at O'Brien's home. Um, so we don't see yeah. any more in that. And then some of the discussions with Julia, so on and so forth. So uh, there, I think there's some that's maybe more implied there than actually shown, but I would agree with you otherwise that like, it seems like a very, um, you know, one note aspect to the party where it's like, oh, power yeah. for power. And oh, to be fair, O'Brien literally says that like, no, it's all about power for power's sake. Nothing can take us down. But I think that he is like, he's the top cop, right? That's right. what his character I sort think. of is. So he's, he's right. definitely voicing the worst of it. Sure. And look at, and, and looking at it that way. Yeah. That definitely gives more um, to imagine a broader world where there are like inner party members who like, are more human or, or they're using this situation to their advantage in some way would make, makes it makes more sense to me. And, you know, I guess it's, it's an argument whether or not oral meant to imply that or not. You make a good point about Julia sort of bringing it up at one point. I had forgotten about that part. Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah. That was just my part of my problem with it. It's just that it seems sort of like that whole part. It's like, okay, I guess. Um, I guess to switch gears a little bit, I also didn't really like Winston as a character that much. He kind of seems like a bad person at multiple parts in the book. Um, where at one point, like he, Julia asks, um, you know, what did you think when you first saw me? And he's like, oh, I wanted to rape you and then bash your head in. Mm -hmm. um, like, holy cow, dude, like, that's pretty uh, effed, like, yeah, even for, and I'm fine with flawed characters or whatever, like, I don't mind it, but, like, kind of sounds like he's like, yeah, I wanted to rape you, like, oh, okay, that's, that's really flawed for me, <laughs> like, a guy yeah. who has, like, rapist tendency. I, I would say that there are, because he, he's not the most... He's not a, like the most heroic hero, he's not really right? A good person. He's not, yeah, he's not no. like the most heroic protagonist. Um, but I would say once again, I think that that was supposed to be a reflection of um, growing up in this kind of society where 
I think that there was a point where it, it seems like they're they're raised to not have a lot of respect or affection for any of their fellow man, right? right. Especially within that that outer party circle. So like that middle line of like the the workers, right? Or the people who sure. are actually productive within the society is it seems like uh, up until, right, the actual reveal with, or, you know, that the, him and Julia start their little affair is the only character he, oddly enough, right, that he shows any affection or kindness toward in any way is O'Brien, yeah. right? Which was obviously, we come to find out is completely, that was like planned. <laughs> like, he's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to get, see if this guy will kind of like, you know, fall into this trap I'm laying. Right. Um, but everyone else he talks about up until like the end of part one is is in a negative light. He he hates the that I don't remember the side or something like that side whatever that that other character who is the guy who who's developing the double speak language right his like friend at the party. Sime Sime yeah, yeah. Um, talks really negatively about him. He talks so negatively about his neighbors and that whole process. Like he doesn't seem to. And again, this is to your point where he doesn't seem like a very good person. No. Um, but and, I, and I think, a, I think yeah. that's an, an, a fact that, cause he, I think he feels from the very beginning of the, the story, right. When he's writing in the diary and everything is he doesn't feel like he's a part of that world. So all of these people seem like bastards to him. Right. Um, but at time, or maybe I'm, and maybe, and I think you make a good point where I do think there's like um, an element of where they, in the society they are sort of because like in the beginning he goes and sees a movie which is basically just like a documentary about like a bunch of people getting killed by helicopters just like literally just like they blow up a boat and then there's like a mom and a child and like a life raft and then they get like um machine gunned to death but at that point in time, and maybe, and maybe this was me reading into it rather than Winston. I thought it was implied that Winston found this sort of distasteful, like this violence um, that I, I think was supposed to sort of show you how they desensitized these people to violence is by showing these, showing them these scenes of violence. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and so I thought initially that he was sort of like, I can't believe we, like watch this crap but then later on like he's walking and a bomb goes off and some lady gets blown up and he just like kicks her arm out of his way so maybe that is supposed to show that he's sort of like he doesn't care about this stuff yeah uh, and i think it's more less of a desensitization desensitization towards violence as much as it's a desensitization towards like the war aspect which again seems to be a bigger Sure. thread of the the entire book where like oh like there's just war all the time and yeah. no one really cares um yeah. then violence for the, the violence for violence sake and again going back to like the the that comment that he made towards julia obviously like pretty pretty sick kind of comment um but once again remember up to that point before like she passed that note over he thought that she was a member of the thought police trying to get him sure. so like all these yeah, other yeah, yeah. other um his his he seemingly thought that pretty much everyone was just some crony part or member of the party. Again, ironically, except for O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, um, I totally, um, if he would have just said, I wanted to bash your head, I think it's the rape part that really likes. Well, sure. And, and then maybe that's just, that is a matter of, um, again, it's completely, you know, 
taboo or completely just, yeah. you know, it's a horrible act, right? I think it's probably one of the, the, the worst things right. a human can do to another human, right? Right. So it's like, are you seeing as the reader, you see that? And I mean, again, I don't disagree with you. I think that um, Winston is very much established as this sort of not great person. And the right. only reason why we can maybe sympathize with him at, at all is that he thinks the world around him sucks. And yeah. we can see that as the reader, right? Like, oh yeah, this place does kind of seem to suck. So I, I, I understand your point of view, Mr. Smith. Right. Um, but you don't so understand everything. Because even some of the other things, like, you know, as he related to his like childhood and how he treated his, his mom. I mean, he was a kid, right? So we don't know the- right. the but he's kind of an, ass, an ass. Yeah, he's an ass. He's an ass yeah. to his single mother and his little sister. And he's like this selfish little brat. And um, and again, some of that's sort of reflected in his actions as an adult, right? I mean, that, that's sure. almost like um, highlighted is in his uh, pursuit of independence, right? As yeah. well, it's, I want it to be about me. I don't want it to be about the party, right? Yeah. So like there's, there's aspects of Winston that also present like maybe why the individual is not to be regarded so highly right, right? like right. you can you can perceive it that way and i mean like oh yeah he's again he's not he's not this paragon of individuality much like we've mentioned uh, anthem where that character is right where he's he's that the character the, the lead in that is supposed to be like this tall handsome uh curious intelligent guy right it's like oh like if, right. there, if there's so if there's a way to prop up independence and individuality it's through sure that that character but like yeah winston is very much presented as what i assume is in every man in this world right where sure. he is not this fantastic character but like you can still see how even in every man like like he's treated like crap and wants to be out of that situation or whatever else yeah um and 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 actually this discussion is making me have a more nuanced opinion that maybe o'brien was always supposed to be sort of this in my mind, he was supposed to kind of be a hero, but maybe he was never supposed to be a hero at all. And he was, oh, and 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 maybe Orwell meant him to sort of be dislikable, or maybe make you think about sympathizing even with like this dislikable human being. Because there is that other part when he's meeting with O'Brien, and the O'Brien's just like, "Would you throw acid into a child's face?" Right, and he's like, "Yeah." <laughs> it's like, okay, like, dude, come on. I mean, again, and maybe that is just like that he's just like a selfish guy or he got swept up in the moment and he just wanted to be a part of this thing. Or... And I think, again, just going on the insights from like the notes on nationalism stuff, a lot of the stuff he talks about in there, right, is like this. I think that the nationalism here, as Orwell would define it, kind of goes two ways, right? So we have the sure. party as presented, but I think even this this revolution, like this rebellion, the, the Goldsteins or whatever you want to call them, Right. Also a form of nationalism, at least according to Orwell, right, based on his definition of it, where like they yeah. will blindly accept the tenets of it and they will refuse other realities. Right. So where they would they would maybe scoff or cringe at the idea of like the party throwing acid in a child's face, they will do it to their own end. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah, a yeah. point where like you can see um, again, there is the. Um, you know, hypocritical aspect of these characters and their 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 means and their ends and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that maybe like if you kind of look at it that way, um, 
the, the ending of the book can almost be seen as happier because maybe the status quo is better than it's all better this other than... this other horrible stuff that both things are doing, right? So like the inner right. party and then like the supposed revolution. All at the same time, like if you take into account the person who was asking him to do all those horrible things was O'Brien, who was a secret agent of the party. Sure, exactly. And, and Winston is just trying to appeal to a, a ticket out, right? Like he wants, right, no, yeah. wants to get out of there. Um, so he's thinking like, okay, if that's what I have to do, like this life I, I've been living for the last 30 years, whatever, I think he's supposed to be around 30, right? Sure. Um, has been like this horrible, gray, dull dredge of a life. And I've, I've seen hope in the, the, the body of Julia and, and like this, the, what I've seen in the proles, like I've seen the people at the lowest level where like there's happiness there. And like, I want that. Um, so you know, it's, it's fallen pretty, but I think that's how anybody falls into with any of these, these, again, I think it's sort of a nationalistic idea there as well. Sure. Again, as, as Orwell would have defined it, not so much how I think of nationalism, but it's the idea of jumping behind an ideal or a philosophy almost blindly and sort of selfishly. So this does go back to him definitely being a somewhat selfish character. Yeah. Um, but I then think, you, uh, you can see most characters as ultimately being kind of selfish because O'Brien is, is selfish in the sense that uh, to maintain his position or programmed as the, the top cop, like that's what he needs to do. Even Julia was very much like, I don't really care what happens to anyone else as long as we can fuck in this hotel room, right? right. Or whatever the, the apartment that they get. Like, yeah, Julia you know, she, kind of she, sucked. She, she, <laughs> she was pretty like, well, because she was note. also, yeah, she was one note and um, for the most part, anyway, right? She, she seems she, sex. Yeah, yeah, she seems pretty uninterested in um, like the actual right, like struggle. The, or... Right. She, but she, I, I think, I think she was like one note, but almost like a, a better representation of of like how people end up acting in the real world in in the face of you know control or oppression or whatever else. It's like, hey, like I'm gonna take little joys where I can. Yeah, um, so yeah. I will I will do my little rebellions kind of just to get a little bit of pleasure, but otherwise I will go along to get along because that's the easiest way to do it. True. Um, whereas like Winston was trying to do a whole lot more and then obviously you've got all the other characters aren't doing anything except for like, you know, O'Brien, the Thought Police, and they have their whole, you know, sci-fi agenda. Right. Um, so she was actually almost the, just the most, almost the most relatable in that sense because it's like, yeah, that's, what most people, how most people would probably operate, where she kind of recognizes the bullshit, but she's like, it is what it is. Yeah. Right. Well, and then, yeah, true. I mean, that's a good point. Um, I think, I, I mean, not to harp on this point too much, so we can move on, but I think the problem I had with the like, the would you throw acid in a child's face is that even like I've read a few books on like atrocity or like genocide and stuff. Is it people don't. Like when you, if you just asked anyone like, Hey, would you throw acid in a kid's face? They'd be like, no, right. it's usually the, the situation they're in pushes them to do these acts. Like they sure. feel like they're in some moment and they have to do it or whatever, or they get carried away or swept away by like this violence going on around them. But right. I mean, and so I just felt like that was a little bit unrealistic and I think they partially, and I, I think I agree with your point that it, it it speaks to Orwell's broader conception of like this, like nationalism in multiple conceptions, this commitment to ideas over morality. Um, well, beyond morality, but also beyond reality, right? Like, sure. it's like that was part but, of it. Uh, but um, it just felt unrealistic 
to me. And I guess I was looking at this. I think I was looking at it from like, are these things, are, do these things match up with the real world? And I was being very critical of that because, and, and we can get into more stuff later, but I just felt like that was a little much and it felt like it was only there so that at the end of the book, O'Brien could replay that back to him and be like, see, you're a jerk. <laughs> and well, then like Winston's like, dang it. Well, uh, yeah. Well, again, it goes to the point of it being a method of the thought police there. And then like, I guess to be fair to try to, try to defend Winston here a little bit. It's not like he did throw acid in a child's face. Like he just, no, like, in, in the face of making like his allegiance to, again, do they have a, a term for the, the Goldstein people? I don't remember if they had a, a like a, like the brotherhood, the brotherhood. Right. So like, but it was just, it was like a show, like a verbal show of allegiance. Like, sure. We're but never you sure. Just be like, no, or you could, so but, sure but, but, one, but, but, it, but it's just a matter where like they're, they're going over all of it. It's just like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're down with the brotherhood. We're down with the brotherhood. And, um, you know, there's, if you kind of just think about more of Winston's actions is ultimately up until like the, pretty much the very end of the book is he never does anything really against anyone else, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have any physical, you know, um, aggression towards anybody else or, or what have you, right? He's, he's pretty passive. And even yeah. his final act of aggression is ultimately one of those push come to shove things like, Hey, it's, it's them or me. Yeah. And, and it, it ultimately came down to self-preservation, right? So it's not like, again, I still agree with you. Like, that's like, that, that was like a weird thing. Like when I'm reading through it, and maybe I just like, we interpret it a little bit differently. I mean, I just saw it as like this weird, stupid, silly pledge of allegiance, right? Like yeah, as, as people yeah, yeah. do in any, any way. And again, going to the point of, of, I mean, not just dystopian fiction, but a lot of uh, fiction, especially the stuff that's trying to comment on society or culture, is they exaggerate to the nth degree. So they're going right. to say like these super horrible things to drive the point home. We're like, see what people will do, like in the face of allegiance of an ideology, like whether it's an ideology you consider good or not. Yeah. Um, and I think that was maybe more of the show is, again, showing that Winston didn't want to be a member of Oceania as it were, but like his, his, um, his faith in stuff was just as blind as anyone else's. He just wanted something different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, so maybe, I, yeah, maybe I, that's I, more what it was, I, I, but I, I don't disagree with you at all. I, like, I, Oh, I that's think, a weird thing to just it, blindly agree to. <laughs> I think I'm being nitpicky and you're being more thematically charitable, which I think is probably a better way to read fiction uh, your way rather than my way but the, it's just these little things that stick out where it's like okay that's a little much I just feel like he cranked it and again like I mean we can get into this more when we talk about comparisons so I don't uh, maybe not go down that road yet um, talking about like is fear and violence really the best way to control a society well we can table that but so the telescreen stuff um just to stick to 19 and basically got it backwards um, <clears throat> in terms of how, because I mean, there was, so, I mean, in our, in our society, American society, the society I'm most familiar with, we do have, we had the Patriot Act, which was the government spying on its own people ostensibly just to prevent terrorism. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen in the last few years, they don't even really have to do that. <laughs> we spy on ourselves constantly. Right. And we tell on ourselves constantly. And that I think is like a more interesting, like weird 
thing because in the, in 1984 it's like forced upon you like you can't turn the surveillance off but even, i mean and use the capital riots as an example like all they did was tell on themselves and track themselves mm-hmm. and videotape themselves and take pictures of themselves and post it on the internet um and like write confessions like here here's me me at the capitol um and that's weird that that's how it turned out i guess i don't know i, I just feel like the surveillance state wasn't what orwell thought it was gonna be well i think and we might have a slightly different conception of this um here in the states because they obviously have a, a different side of uh, sort of role of surveillance in the uk and in, in like you know sure. britain or london like they have like the whole cctv thing and they've got those cameras everywhere so on and so forth so the, the element of surveillance there which i don't think existed at the time but i think is actually maybe a little bit more accurate in in britain than it is in sure. the united states um but there and is I guess you could say china as well but. right yeah i mean i, mean, I guess I mean, i'm just considering it more in the western world because he does sure, sort sure. of separate them all um but the surveillance state still exists in some capacity right whether it's right. self-imposed or not and you you could probably see and this is where like you can maybe look at something like fahrenheit 451 and how they sort of show technology and surveillance and how that could end up turning into like the full total telescreen surveillance right where at first yeah. like it's it's completely voluntary where you're like because it seems neat you're like yeah. oh cool i get to have this giant tv and i get to have this uh, ear- airpod on my ear all the time and i get to carry around my phone with me everywhere this is perfect like this is uh-huh. so convenient and then you can see potentially and this is sort of going along with what the patriot act did here and other things that like you know uh, uh, snowden had whistle blown on where it's like oh the government was getting their little fingers in that nefarious soup and taking advantage of these um microphones and these cameras everywhere right where it's yeah at first it's self-imposed and then like it's being you know bastardized around us so i don't think that we're quite in that complete obviously we don't have mandatory on all the time telescreens um but like right now i mean like i have my fire stick on and i I don't know if it's listening to me or not (laughs) and then people have alexa or whatever else and that's like um again like that's more maybe paranoia that sets in when you think about some of these things yeah Um, i guess my my whole yeah it's no i agree with you i I do that's why i don't have um i don't have one of those listening speakers and not even because i'm worried about the government so much as i just don't want a a giant corporation to sure have this data on me and i think um again just to use the capitol hill riots like it's it's funny to me because you know they were able to track like a ton of these people because they all had their cell phones on them and all you had to do well one of the things you had to do is not have a flipping cell phone (laughs) like leave that leave it at home Mm-hmm. you know leave it at home wear a mask you might have gotten away i mean not that i mean i'm not i'm glad they got caught but it's like the, it, it seems we're surveilling ourselves which is just i don't know i i can't get over that like I, I, well, there's right. something crazy about it and and that's more the point uh again less so in this book but that's very much present in in the world of fahrenheit right where it is self-surveillance because people get themselves with the, the the little seashells they have in their ears they have the telescreens they have like these devices that ultimately they can be tracked very easily right where people yeah it's basically like a self self-imposed surveillance um and that's that is 100 that's more accurate to today than the 1984 version right yeah but it, it's just a matter of like how far away are we 
sure from the 1984 version because it's like maybe that 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 this is just a step along the way right just like people have made the comparisons with a brave new world and again you'd be more aware of this than i am because i hadn't finished the book but there's a lot of the things that people do in that world that are self-imposed right we're like oh well, we just take these drugs and we kind of do this stuff and we just do it to ourselves yeah. which is which is accurate today right people are just they're um over-medicated and self-medicated, right? We do that, whether that's through pharmaceuticals or alcohol or whatever else it might be, is people do it to themselves. That's not being forced on most. Yeah. I mean, there are some people that kind of get, maybe gets forced on a little bit, but um, for the most part, like people choose to just check out. And yeah. that's also true of, and I think that's like the thing where if you take like the collective predictions of a lot of these, these dystopian authors, like you can see just a lot of the threads like just coming to pass. And that's because to me, it's just very interesting, right? Because so many of these things were, you know, I think uh, sticking like with the, um, or like with Fahrenheit, I think being the, one of the the more recent of them, of the, at least the, the the three that we've mentioned more regularly yeah, here. Like yeah, yeah. Anthem, I think was written in the thirties. Uh, 1984 was written in the forties. And then I think um, Fahrenheit was written in the fifties, right? So those were still like, like the, the most recent is about 70 years old. So right. it's um, like the fact that they, they just kind of saw some of this stuff in some capacity, like coming to pass is this kind of like, it's interesting to me. Just yeah, yeah, these, no, these people is. could, could make these considerations um, and um, just for the future. And uh, again, the whole idea and especially uh, the, the, how, Orwell ends his essay notes on nationalism is, is, is he think that he thinks that literature is important to do this, right. To get your voice heard and to kind of get it in a point where maybe it's, it's uh, seems palatable because it's fiction or because it's supposed to be entertainment. It, like the ideas will sort of seep into our minds, but yeah. it seems like uh, regardless of these warnings, most people have just let all of it happen. Um, and again, most of it's out of convenience and most of it at this point has been very much self-imposed. I'm not going to disagree with that whatsoever. Um, but it's like, we, we, there's a lot of things we as, as humans do in the, the name of progress or convenience that have negative outcomes that weren't seemingly weren't entirely considered. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And then like, and we're still on that path, right? We're on that path right. of like, ah, we're still kind of maybe doing things or, or, or pushing our technology in, in such a way that like, it definitely seems it's it's a uh, it's that um, immediacy right that we have. We're like, oh, this feels good now, but we don't right. think about how it's going to feel in a few years. And that goes back to like we've mentioned like the whole Jonathan Haidt kind of thing when he talks about it, or the uh, what was the other book that you had mentioned? Um, amusing ourselves. Today. Amusing ourselves. That so like again like those were maybe more focused on specific things as far as entertainment or whatever else. But it's like we've developed these these mediums. That we're supposed to be like that are whether they're entertaining convenient whatever else it might be and then they do have like these long-term negative effects that just weren't considered but like they right. were sort of considered by these these writers yeah yeah, you know, yeah. years prior like decades earlier no um, and i think yeah you know and that is the good part about dystopian fiction or even just science fiction in general is is seeing the things that people are able to sort of predict or quasi predict but I think you kind of brought it up that then I think Brave New World is is still my favorite of all of them that I've read only because I do think he kind of nails the idea that this kind of stuff is generally we feel like it's our idea. 
like oh you know okay yeah here's this cool drug um that we just you take it and you feel good and you don't have to have any worries or problems or anxiety and you kind of it all just goes away um and you know then and, and that's it, it kind of a, and, and again that is there isn't a one-to-one parallel in our society but i mean there are like you know various drugs people take to to help them remove their their negative feelings and i'm not i don't begrudge anyone who does that but anyway i just think i think the the idea that we do it to ourselves is more interesting and to me has been more um true at least in my lifetime and at least in america and Mm -hmm. you know there might be other countries where it is more like top-down government yeah um but in our country it seems a lot of like our own (laughs) in in pursuit of this sort of immediacy like you said this pleasure this i feel good now this is awesome this is cool who cares about the ramifications or right and i'm curious i don't when did um when was brave new world published i think it was 1931 31 okay so that's that's i guess that that, that's pre-world war ii right so yeah uh, and maybe that's kind of where at least like if you look at Anthem 1984 and then even Fahrenheit to an extent, maybe that's why they differentiate is because all of those were written in response to, in some capacity. I mean, Anthem for sure was written in response to communist Russia and the USSR. Um, 1984 was kind of written in the wake of World War II and even kind of like British imperialism and all that kind of stuff. And that was definitely Orwell's take on stuff, right? He definitely had a very specific take on what nationalism and the fear of it should be. And then, um, you know, same thing for Bradbury is he's, he's, you know, obviously an American writer, it's post-World War II, and he's writing in the wake of that. And to be fair, his his book's a little bit more about, like, censorship. Like, there's government control in there, but it's, it's uh, I don't think that that's, like, the overwhelming theme of the, uh, of his book, although it's definitely present. Sure. Um, whereas, um, maybe what uh, Huxley was kind of going off of was more like the the pleasures and the indulgences of the 1920s and then how right. like how all of that can lead to like this weird society as well which uh, I 100% agree with I think that that has been um, very accurate I think that I think that most of the, the worst of society has been self-imposed and then but I still think when you look at you can look at the lens of history whether it's it's Nazi Germany sure. or communist Russia is you can see how aspects of this stuff can be taken advantage of by collectivism or government entities right right um, and we can still see that in today as well though maybe just not to the extremes although or yeah. in some of it's you know we don't see it because they don't want us to see it yeah. right much yeah, like the, and- the worlds that these stories were written in is yeah. the every man the parole or whoever else just doesn't consider like oh no this is just the world yeah. right and they don't think about the fact that they've got like a thumb on them right and that's why i well and so two things i just want to circle back so i just so i'm not misconstrued for the to the to the two people who might listen to this but <laughs> hopefully more um uh, but uh the the uh i think like uh psychiatric drugs for people who need them and for whom life is improved because they're escaping like a an overwhelming sense of whatever i think it's totally reasonable i was speaking more to like overuse or you know um and not just psychiatric drugs but other drugs well, sure. And, and I, yeah, I understand. I, I, definitely, yeah, yeah, I understood okay. that. It was just, just a matter, um, yeah, it's a point where in this day and age, there is a, a recreational use of sure. these things, right? Versus yeah. an actual, you know, a, a legitimate medical need for it. 
Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because there are just a lot of people, and again, that's why I mentioned stuff like alcohol and stuff like that. Because people will will. It's not the same as what soma is because the side effects are are, are substantially you know worse. Um, yeah. And I think from my understanding maybe... of of the the pill or whatever, but there are also there's people who uh, when you talk about like the um, oh what do they call it the uh, what's the drug epidemic they keep on referencing opioid oh the opioid epidemic right where like some stuff sometimes this stuff starts out as a legitimate prescription oh yeah um, but then it becomes like this horrible habitual and or recreational thing right so when we talk about yeah. the opioid crisis epidemic in in um the united states if not a lot of the the western world if not the world at large right where some of these things have been pushed and again this goes more towards a, a corporatist thing where they've been pushed sure. by corporations and, and, and pharmaceutical companies versus, I mean, although I guess you can make the argument on the government side through like veterans affairs kind of stuff, because I know that's where a lot of the opioid crisis, um, there's a, at least a big, you know, slice of that pie in that, um, uh, you know, that group of people. But um, yeah, I, I kind of got lost on a thread, but like, no, so it, it, it's a mix of both, right? Where there, sure, there is sure. like the pure recreational use of these, um kind of you know escape routes for lack of a better term right yeah, so yeah, whether yeah. that is opioids whether that is alcohol whether that's any sort of other narcotic right people will take these things to just kind of like all right sure. i want to i want to be able to just check out or numb myself or whatever else it is from yeah, the and I should, at large and uh, i should but, add um it's not just drugs it's you know i mean a lot of the things that huxley references but you know that we can see parallels to in our world are like sex you know like mm -hmm infinite access to as much pornography as you'd want for the rest of your life and again i don't have any like specific qualm against it but i think if you're using it as a everything can be used too much everything can be indulged in too much or entertainment um yeah kind of getting lost in a lot of these holes and i you know again not to not to veer too off topic but it is all about moderate use and blah 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 but um oh so to circle back to the i think for me at least part of my crit another criticism of 1984 would be like it seems to me that having a happy population would be easier to control than an unhappy one and the world of 1984 is just awful like they get nothing out of it you know they have to drink like they literally have to drink like rubbing alcohol they don't have to but they do right they eat slop like nothing is good like nothing there's no pleasure. And I mean, I guess, again, it's supposed to be cartoonish, but it is like, it seems to me that if there was some benefit conferred because of like, okay, we have to put up with this totalitarian stuff, but we get this, you know what I mean? Like we put up with being spied on and having no freedoms, but we get what we think is a stable society. But instead it's like, we get spied on, there's censorship and everything sucks. Like, see, right. Like, well, I, I think that, um, and this is a, another little point that we hadn't quite talked on as it relates to the book is the erasure of history in the sure. context of that world. Because I, I, again, we're, we're very much talking about, or we see this world like, once again through Winston Smith's eyes. And he seems particularly just, a, you know, cognizant of these things. Like he's cognizant yeah. of the fact that they're being watched all the time. He's cognizant of the fact that the food's not great and that he doesn't like victory gin, right? Um, but I, it's also based, it's presented even through his his mind that he is, he's a minority of one, right? Like, and he says that in there, and he's the madman, right? He's insane because he's the one person who thinks the way he thinks. 
Yeah. Right? So I think and it, this gets presented through his, his neighbor, Parsons, I think was his, his name, where he seemed like happy as a clam to be living whatever little life he was, right? He was, he, and he, his, his children were part of the youth brigade and he, he seemed just perfectly, you know, uh, pleased with the, the life he was leading. Right. Sure. And then even the Syme character was like, oh, this new language is just fantastic. We're doing to it. We're just making it more efficient and we're reducing it to everything else. So you can kind of see these little snippets of the other people there where they're kind of happy doing what they're doing because they've bought into it because of the, the bill of goods they've been sold. They think it's all peachy keen. Winston as a character and as a reader, because we see the world's kind of fucked up, but we're like, no, this is a fucked up place. Like, why was anyone like this? But you do get the idea based on how they alter the facts, right? And how they present them um, for anyone who's really been raised in a world like that. And you can even see that in this day and age, like there's so many young people, and especially you and I would deal with young people, is the way that they perceive the world is very different based on the information that they've been presented. Right. So and, and this is further exemplified, I think, through like the, the little vignettes or whatever we see with the proles is the proles do seem legitimately happier because they don't have the other things imposed on them. They're allowed to drink in a dive bar. They're allowed to have families. Now, they aren't given great abundance of wealth, but they have um, at least a, a zone of freedoms that they're allowed to experience. And then again, like that's where Winston ultimately he kind of sees that. And again, he seems to be the only one, again, as the, the point of view character who's cognizant of that, where he sees that woman near the end of part two, right? As she's singing in the street doing laundry. Yeah. And she's like this, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, older woman, like a little maybe overweight. She's just lived a life. And he just looks at her and says, that's beautiful, right? Yeah. Like, and that's how he sees it. And, and but again, because his his point of view is is very unique amongst all of the characters we get to see in the book. So we we pretty I, much we get his, yeah. which is is probably the mo the closest to ours, right? In the sense that we can observe that these things are wrong because we don't sure. live in that world, versus an O'Brien or Julia, who are really the only other characters that we get some sense of their point of view, and they're completely tainted by yeah. the world that they have been written into. Yeah. And I think, I think you and I just read, I mean, this is just like me reading into the book differently than you did, I guess. Cause I read the neighbor character. I read the neighbor character as kind of dumb and sort of just sure. But my understanding was that, or at least when I read it, is that both him and Syme were just sort of, I suspected that these characters also knew that it sucked, but they were sort of putting on the face that they were expected to, or like, that everyone he interacted with was kind of like, oh, this is I love the party and I, I love I love that my kids spy on me. That's awesome. Um, and like, but it felt I guess I and again this maybe me reading is me reading into it because in the text it's not specifically stated. But my impression was that they or at least Syme knew there was some weird stuff going on because like even you know even Winston who isn't presented as the most intelligent character if you pay attention at all, like, cause he's like, well, four years ago we were at war with this country and now it's this country. Right. You can't like erase your own memories. And I mean, this gets into the whole double think right. thing where you're, where that's how it's. And again, I think, I don't know if we want to even, I think there's problems with that. I mean, I think it's an interesting concept. I don't think there's any evidence at least, and this is me again, nitpicking. I don't think there's any evidence that like you can reduce language or that like human beings wouldn't just come up with different ways to express 
the same thing if that makes sense because we're constantly inventing new words yeah uh, yeah, yeah. and i i would uh, with what you said of, of the, some of the other characters actually i don't disagree with that at all I think that that's that those were two ends of the 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 outer party, right? When you have Parsons yeah. versus Syme, I think Parsons legitimately was just not smart enough to realize, like he he, I think right. he legitimately was happy in that world that he just wasn't intelligent enough to really pick up on the weirdness, right? I think he right. was legitimately happy that his child turned him in, and he was happy <laughs> about Hate Week and the 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 the, yeah. the two hours hate or whatever it was called, um, or the two minutes hate. And, and as Winston pointed out on his, the, the only interaction we get with Simon, it's like, yeah, this guy's too smart for his own good. Um, he's definitely a party guy, but they're going to kill him as soon as he's, yeah. uh, he's no longer useful to him. So yeah. it's a point where that's how that, that is maintained, right? Like, okay, we'll keep right. the dummies around because we still need work from them and we'll use intelligent people to the end of their line. And that's yeah. what ended up happening with both uh, Syme and Winston himself, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah. well, you, Winston you obviously went off the, the deep end as far as becoming or wanting to become a revolutionary. Um, and um, there's all that. And then with the, the the double think or the new speak kind of stuff is that was definitely a, a huge kind of like sci-fi component of things. But even right. with that, like, again, this is based more in Orwell's uh, nonfiction writings is you do see where he was coming from with it sure. in the sense that there are there's times where like people will say things like they know to be false but with complete faith right and that's and we yeah. can see that um in this day and age like it does happen and then even in terms of like the reduction of language i think that there is that's becoming a little bit more current in the sense of uh, and uh, you know maybe that i'm making a, a false equivocation here but when we talk about like text language especially with young people who've grown up with it is language has been reduced and i am curious how that long term again we haven't seen the long term effects sure. of this because there's still a good number of people who grew up without texting um but what might language look like you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now for people who've really only, who've grown up their entire lives using that shorthand yeah. and how much ha will they have reduced communication, you know, long-term. And, and I, I think mean, that that is a, a legitimate, again, that's one of those things like we hadn't considered the potential negative sure. ramifications of the technology where yes, it's, it's convenient shorthand when we talk about it with texting with the LOLs or even emoji speak or whatever, right? Um, you know, but like the language has altered and you can see, and I see this again, cause I see young people's writing all the time is it's, I can't really compare obviously what people who were writing now to 10 years ago, other than my own writing, right. Comparing it to my own writing, but it's like, ah, it's diminished for a lot of them. You know, yeah, I, I, mean, I see well, it. I mean, I would say, I would say a couple things. I think at, well, I think my primary argument is that the, the argument of the book is that if we were to change language, that'll make certain thoughts literally unthinkable. Um, and the goal was that then no one will ever do thought crime because they actually can't think the thoughts that we don't want them to think because they don't have the words. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to George Orwell, I think there was a time when linguistics kind of had this idea that, or linguists, I should say, had this idea that maybe that was a possibility that our language limits our thoughts um but it doesn't actually seem to bear out in reality and that we just sort of that language that thought is is primary or like you know i don't know if that makes sense like we invent i mean throughout all of human history we've had to invent 
new ways of describing new abstract concepts that don't right. have any like we come up with goal. words and categories for new thoughts right, right. So it's, it's like the words and the phrases follow the the idea is that yeah, yeah. kind of and that and that we, and there's no way you could say like oh we just got rid of the word well i don't know what kind of word they were trying to get rid of like bad for whatever reason or because they thought it was superfluous or whatever mm -hmm. so they just called it ungood but then right. you still have ungood and like ungood still means the same thing as bad. <laughs> right. Well, it, yeah. but part of it is like, it, again, uh, this goes back to the idea of understanding, I guess, that it is um, not only fiction, but like a purposeful, like you mentioned, we mentioned hyper reality, uh, hy hyper hyperbolic society yeah. version of all this stuff. So he's saying like, oh, wouldn't it be horrible? Like if we really went this far with it, right? Where we just start deleting words from the dictionary. Right. But and every word my, is just like yeah. a weird different version of a single prime. So we have good, we've got double good and ungood. Like that's, and that's the only way we can say things within that context of whether things are good or bad as we know them, right? Or whether they're excellent right. or awful, right? It's like, no, now there's where there were a bunch of synonyms or variables or variants or, or degrees of this idea now there are three right yeah, uh, yeah there's yeah. extra good good ungood i don't know if, if extra good was the warm but i think that he did talk about double one that plus, means double plus good double good or whatever right sure um, um and no you, no but you, you can see this though even in reality is how people are altering words or language right even in that sure. context of like where they they're they uh, based on and again this is not to, to more back to your um, point of view of whether it's Brave New World or the point where it's a lot of it's self-imposed, this is not government-imposed stuff, but like societally or culturally, like we have done this with words where like we change the meanings of them and then we use different words to mean things that didn't used to mean that, right? So, yeah. um, so and, and that's maybe <laughs> the, the greater message or the more honest message of, of like Huxley and again, I think this is sort of true of of Bradbury as well. Is that we, we're like we're we're the, our own worst enemy. We are the monsters, right? We're like you, you know, we're the monsters in the closet, monsters under the bed, whatever you want to call it. It's not it's not Big Brother. Yeah. Um, now, ultimately, you might just get someone who, over time, sees all this stuff and they're still intelligent enough to take advantage of it. But sure. like. Um, they have to wait for all those those cards or those pieces to fall in line and be like, okay, cool. Now I can play my hand, right? Yes. If there is in fact that nefarious character or sure. class of people, right? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it's interesting. I think all of it's, and that's why I like I like all of it. I think all of it's interesting yeah. because I, 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 you, and again, that's I, you know, there's an article I share with students all the time, you know. I got from online that it compares the idea of dystopian fiction to putting a funhouse mirror to reality, right? And that's what it does. It shows you the warps and the angles and the blown out versions of what could be or what has yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's this point where like when you can see that magnification or that exaggeration, it just it forces you to ponder the ideas more. So it, I, I'm never thinking necessarily that this is like realistic even yeah, if there yeah. is a reflection of reality within it. Like, no, we don't live in 1984. We don't live in an Orwellian sure, world. Sure. We don't live in a Huxleyan world, but you can see some of this stuff present, right? Yeah, like, no, I, I would totally, um, yeah. I mean, I think you're brought, two things you said. I, uh, I agree absolutely that I think why I prefer Huxley and, and Fahrenheit 1940, not, what the hell? Nine, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. 451 
is that it does sort of point the arrow in, I think, the right direction, which is that we are responsible for, humans are responsible, us ourselves, we have it within us to do these bad things, and that we should pay heed to those impulses Mm -hmm. or notice them within ourselves, not that they're going to be imposed upon. And again, there's a bunch of various factors. Like you said, there's, you know, corporations that sort of influence the way we think and the government does too. And, and I think your other point to tie it together is that even if I think that this book gets it wrong in a lot of ways, it's definitely worth reading and thinking about um, and seeing the ways in maybe it could have got it right or the ways in which he thought or the reasons why he thought it might end up this way, which, you know, as you already stated, were heavily, probably heavily influenced by his experiences of living through World War II and seeing Nazism and, um, you know, uh, Stalinism sort of mm-hmm. take over and his sort of conceptions of what if those things happened here or what, what, what would that look like? I'm like, and I think you're, uh, to go back to another point you made, I think I often look at it from an American point of view and forget that he's sort of coming at it from a, a very English, uh, uh, point of view, direction, uh, perspective, yep. perspective. Um, and so that I think is something that I often forgot. I'm like, well, this doesn't match up to my American experience, but I think it, it did probably adhere more to the, some of the stuff he was seeing. Um, but I think just in, I, I don't regret having read this book and I would recommend people, I recommend people read all the great works even if you don't like it before i know what they're talking about or i can reference it or i know what they what they're kind of talking about when they say double speak or know what they're talking about when they say orwellian or i know what they're and so i would i would i I mean even if i personally i mean i think it's definitely worth reading um i've read plenty of books that i don't like <laughs> or i thought we're like i mean i didn't like Ant- i didn't like anthem i've read it twice mm-hmm. um but i think it's worth reading i think it's worth understanding like where this person's coming from and what her ideas are and and you know and it helps you and again just go back to our our first episode of this podcast helps you just be a more well-rounded person i i think that's what reading does i i'm getting off topic of 1984 but there's this like, like neil, people hate neil deGrasse Tyson now but he had this like thing about reading where he was talking about how the more you read, it, it starts to form connections with other things you've read. Mm-hmm. And, and the more you read, the more those connections grow. And I, I often think about it that way, because the more you do read, you start to think about, oh, this reminds me of this thing I've read, which reminds me of this thing I read. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, recommend the book, but circling back, we were talking about um, language changing. Um, I agree with you that language is changing now. And, but I think, I think personally, like, that's just the way it is, <laughs> you know, I think I'm okay with it. Like, that's just the way it goes. Um, and some people don't like it. I know that's sort of like a pot in some ways, a political issue and always has been like, kind of like, oh, you can't change the definition of this thing. But I just think that it, for me, and again, this might be a liberal perspective. Like it always changes, you know, we're always sort of in flux. There might, and I mean, maybe that's me not taking into account some consequences that I'm not seeing, but um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I tend to agree that just based on my 
uh, I haven't gone deep into linguistics. I mean, I had taken like a history of the English language course at one point. And you do see that there is like a natural progression of language change. And I think that 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 makes sense to me, because, again, like there is a natural point where like we come up with new words or we we reframe words to better suit like the the times, so on and so forth. But I think that sometimes there is a concerted effort to change language. And that I don't like. I mean, language changing because the world's changing is one thing. Um, But like to go out there and like boldly read, redefine language, I think is, um, you know, you're, you're venturing into potentially dangerous water there. Um, And this goes back to, again, I think one of our, I don't know if we had it on on the first talk, but it's the idea of, um, of just kind of just knowledge in general, right? Where it's like, yeah, or or, or we talked about the idea of, I think like, um, uh, now I'm, I'm forgetting the, the phrase there, but you get like the, the, you know, Michel Foucault's and the um, Derrida's or the postmodernism, right? We're like, oh, nothing means anything. So maybe we didn't even have a recorded talk about this, but like where things become so redefined that they become ill-defined or undefined. And then that makes communication more difficult. And that's kind of the point, or at least I, I, I read into it for 1984, is that's the whole idea with the idea of, of reducing language so much that it makes legitimate communication of, of deeper thought harder to do, right? So if you don't have as concrete of definitions or specific categories, it makes expressing ideas more difficult. Sure. Um, and I think that that's like just like this weird um, sort of concept of, of policing thought that is not... It, again, it's not governmental. It's not even corporate. It's just like this weird thing that certain philosophies kind of gravitate towards. Like, oh, like let's 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 make yeah talking about ideas hard. <laughs> it's like, well, we should make yeah. it less hard. Like, let's you know, which is I think the purpose of categorization and definition and the the a concrete nature or foundation of language, right? Um, but that's sort of a. I, I mean. I think maybe that's a, an okay way to to wrap up the thoughts. I would I would agree with with uh, your general point that you made just prior to this, where like reading more and, and having a varied reading and interest and reading things that you don't agree with or things you don't like is very uh, positive. And th- and like you mentioned with his his nonfiction stuff, I I agree with you. I think that his the one the essay I read was actually quite readable. And, and interesting. And even though you still have to con- uh, understand it in the context and the time with which it was written, I'm more interested in reading more Orwell nonfiction than I am looking at any more of his fiction, right? right. Like I don't really care to maybe revisit Animal Farm, although I may, or some of the other stuff that was referenced, but like he has a bunch of essays out there that I didn't even really know that he was much of an essayist or whatever. So, yeah. um, uh, and that's oh, I had a... one thing that he points out at the end of that notes on nationalism. Again, it's the idea like, hey, like well, the real way to keep a lot of these ideas alive and going back to our sort of purpose in these conversations is to sort of fight against bias or to better understand, you know, the, the, the thoughts of the world is to write more, read more, think more or whatever, you know, part of the cycle those fall into. Right. And I think that's just a a good message of his nonfiction writing. And I think it's at least sort of a subtle message in 1984 is like, yeah, it's better to have more ideas out there that people can, uh, you know, yeah. be exposed to consume and actually air out versus just crushing them. Right. <laughs> yeah. True. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if I, I think we're, if we're wrapping up, I had had a question for you about the, I mean, we could go into like the censorship censorship um, like 
you know, where if we see my opinion is that 1984 is often referenced badly <laughs> in our modern discourse. Like people say like, oh, this is Orwellian when it's really not. Um, that's just my feeling on it. The two most Orwellian things I can think of would be the Patriot Act. And then when Kellyanne Conway said alternative facts, that was pretty pretty orwellian to me <laughs> yeah no the, i mean the, the idea of alternative facts is what like you can basically use that synonymously with the idea of double speak yeah. and then um a patriot act as far as spying for sure i think that there has become uh, there's been a trend in in recent years so this is within like the last decade of, or so of of editing history and you see that sure. in, in certain um, historical endeavors that are being put out there. And you don't know to really what end they really serve yet, uh, yet I think. But there is a point where people are trying to reframe or, or restate history in a way that is um, Orwellian. And then there's even, I, I know, like one of the things that they, um, I, it was the first thing I thought of uh, in relation to like the little idea of um, war is peace or whatever. And that little, you know, the actual snippet that they, they give you in the book from the Goldstein stuff yeah. is, is the, the changing of the guard as far as who the enemy is. Right. And that happens constantly. And the first thing that popped into mind for me was like how we dealt with like Al Qaeda and ISIS um, over the last you know few years, the point where like we were uh, the Al Qaeda was the enemy for eight years, and then for the next eight years they were our allies fighting ISIS, who we had actually trained and armed prior to that. To the point where like we had just flip flopped our enemies in the same region, and but it for the you know Joe public, it sure. that was not really known. Sure. People were like, oh no, they're, these are the bad guys now, and they aren't even cognizant of the fact that we just <laughs> switched allegiances. Yeah, and I mean, um, so there's a lot of you know. Again, like there's things that are, are present, and I think to Orwell's point is that was also true back then because kind of like the idea during World War II, uh, the Western world had allied themselves with, um, you know, the USSR against Nazi Germany. But then as soon as that was over, it's like, all right, cool, Cold War time, and now these guys are the bad guys. Right. And up up until World War II, they were seen as the bad guys in certain regions of the world as well. So like it just kind of ebbed right. and flowed, and uh, that has been consistent. Um, at least since the turn of the century, if not prior to that. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, yeah, and you made two points. That, so the history thing, I, I, um, I think I know where you're coming from with that. I, I think that writing history has always been a political hot button topic. I mean, I know now it's sort of like conservatives are mad that liberals are sort of writing almost anti-American sort of versions of history where they feel like they're making us they're making early American settlers out to be more monstrous than they believe they were. But there was, you know, prior in the early, early 2000s, it was like the reverse where there was like liberals were mad that they felt like conservatives were whitewashing parts of American history and making Americans out to be more heroic than maybe they actually were. Mm -hmm. So I think your point in general, I do think there's this constant struggle um, to between these two political ideologies um over what history should be um or what history part of history we should emphasize and which part we should de-emphasize and i i totally agree with the fact that there should be and i i want more new i want both i want all of it you know i want mm -hmm. history to be told from a, a a holistic point of view and i do think there is this sort of ideological struggle um to sort of rewrite or reframe or push it in a certain direction to fit a narrative but and to end on some praise, I guess I totally agree with your point about. I think to say I think Orwell really called it 
uh, in his part about the it's like the little subsection called war is peace mm-hmm. or whatever yeah i he says something on there about like vague frontiers for like vague reasons and that is sort of like at least in the american experience where we find ourselves and like okay where do we like we don't even re- i mean i'm not you know i'm guilty of this too i'm not really paying attention i know we have troops in like you know at least seven eight i don't know i couldn't name them all right. if you asked me about countries right we're in the context of yeah. 1984 that's all taking place in like middle africa or something like that yeah. but in in the real world all these proxy wars take place in the middle east right. and that's between Oceania, that is the United States, right. the USSR, that is Eurasia, and right. you know China, which you some people might see as allies of Russia, although it doesn't seem to be quite clear in contemporary yeah. terms. So it's like eh, those things, like those major power players, yeah. kind of exist now, and they right. kind of have all these proxy wars in the middle of the world, right. and they are vague right. and ill-defined, right. and they don't really affect any of those countries, right you know um focused uh, in, the, on yeah. Yeah, in, on their yeah. own land right so um yeah so it's, it's like yeah yeah he, he pointed part, it out to us and it's kind of yeah. reality today i thought that part was very prescient prescient prescient, prescient. Uh, yeah I think prescient yes uh, that part I, I would say yeah wow like that was really we do have this and i don't his reasoning i think is wrong because he says like oh it's to use up surplus goods I don't think we, I mean, you could argue that we do use up too much of our resources to fund these wars. I would agree with that, but I don't think we're doing it with the express purpose of like. Well, I think that was, that was like one of the uh, the deals of using surplus goods, but also the idea of, of having the perpetual war is part of the way to maintain power because it does create that underlying sense of of fear like hey well we need need to be fighting over here because this thing could be coming for us so like let's get after it and And i think that's more accurate that's yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no for sure so that part was great um but yeah i guess we should probably wrap her up unless you got any no, I mean, I'm sure, uh, you know, there's probably lingering thoughts in here sure. or other stuff that I, I could definitely comment on or or say, uh, again, like, I, I, you know, just back to your point, I, I did enjoy reading it. I thought it was well written. I would agree that the first act is a little slow. Um, it seems to be more focused from part two through the end so that it does. And that, to be fair, I think those are also, they get shorter. I think each part gets shorter. Uh, or maybe he, I, I think it seemed the, like it did. Yeah, I think the third part for sure is pretty short in comparison to the rest of the book. So that's probably what Act Three seems so like focused and like oh, it's just we're on the uh, as far as torture a roller coaster train. goes. Like we're just we're, we're rushing towards the end. Yeah, um, just torture so, porn if they, if you're into that. So. Yeah, but for the most part, I thought it was it was definitely well written enough to keep me engaged. It was a page turn to the point where like I would kind of get into it and just keep going on, on certain nights that I was reading. Um, I think the ideas are, um, are still kind of current, if not exactly accurate. I think there's still sure. some good stuff to consider. And uh, for those of you who read 1984 and have enjoyed it, uh, if you haven't read his nonfiction, I, I plan to dive into more of it. I did enjoy his commentary. You do have to take it in the context of the time in which it was written, which was, um in you know the 30s and 40s uh, in, in from an english perspective of a 
uh, democratic socialist, right? Like that was his kind of worldview and stuff like that. Um, but it's still, it's, he, he's a solid prose writer. Like you can't take that away from Orwell. There's a reason why he is still studied in schools today. There's a reason why people still reference things, even if it's inaccurately <laughs> as Orwellian. Um, which I agree with Max that I think that that is generally true. I think people misattribute some of the, the concepts there. Um, but if you haven't read it, of course, uh, we we ruined most of it for you in this yes. conversation. Um, but go read it uh, if if you have read it and you have comments. You know, uh, we'll maybe try to share this in a place where you can kind of uh, share your ideas with us. Um, and uh, I, I enjoy this format. Actually, I enjoy really talking about just a kind of a more focused book. And I'm, I'm looking forward to our next one, which I think will be curious. We can bring that up because um, sure. I've, already, I've already started reading it. I haven't, I've only got a chapter in, but we're reading Jane Austen's Emma, um, which will be, I imagine, a very different conversation <laughs> than we're having now. And we might be a lot more lost in that one as far as uh, social relevance or whatever else. Sure. This is my first ever real exposure to Jane Austen stuff other than being forced to maybe watch a, a version of Pride and Prejudice with my mom. So um, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to that one. I haven't, I just put in my requests from the library, so I haven't started, but it'll definitely probably very, very different. Um, but I am looking forward to it. I've never read Jane Austen, so we'll see. All right. So uh, thank you for joining us on this stroll down uh, the dystopian discussion. Uh, we will talk to you all next time. And we'll, uh, as I've been saying, as a sign off, we'll catch you on the flippity flop. <laughs>